today, I'm thrilled to say that I have a co-host, uh, the one and only Ben Bradley. Hello, Junaid. Hello, Ben. Oh, it's so great to be here. I, oh, I, I'm, I'm excited. I've been waiting for this opportunity for my whole life. The moment has finally come, and it's thanks to one man and one man only. Junaid, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure, it's my pleasure. Now, today me and Ben have the pleasure of speaking to uh, Associate Professor Daniele Doragoni. How are you doing today, Dan? I'm doing very well, thank you so much. It's a great idea what you're doing right here, and thank you for inviting me. So, um, you do research in quantum field theory, right? I do. C a little bit of quantum field theory, a little bit of string theory. Ooh. Good. Could you explain to us in a... Year two terms. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is no equations. I shouldn't be writing anything. Very good. So um, quantum field theory and string theory are quantum field theory. Okay, quantum field theory works in the sense that it is really up to like now the best description that we have of the real world. What happens is that uh, people got really bored and they didn't know what we were made of and they started literally smashing stuff together. You take a proton, you smash it with another proton and you just look what's coming out. Quantum field theory is the best mathematical framework that actually tells you what is coming out. String theory on the other hand is beautiful. I'm in the maths department so I'm very uh, happy discussing stuff that has nothing to do with the real world. String theory is, if you wish, an extension in a certain sense of quantum field theory. It kind of contains inside quantum field theory, but it's never been, nor I believe it will ever be verified experimentally. For sure, in the period where I will be alive, it will not be uh, experimentally verified. But it's a beautiful mathematical work, um, framework. But quantum field theory, to be a little bit more precise, is um, a way to describe what are called quantum fields. So you like to think about like, you know, particles as little balls that are floating in space. However, a better way to think about it is that the whole space is permeated by these quantum fields. And a quantum field can describe all the different type of particles. And the vacuum of quantum field theory, what you would expect to be empty space, while well, it's not really empty. Because of quantum fluctuations, I'm sure you've heard the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. It tells you that actually particle can pop out of the vacuum and then disappear out of the vacuum. And the way to describe it is via quantum field theory. So you should think really these fields as some sort of like, you know, sheet permeating the whole space-time and some bubbles pop out of this sheet and then disappear. And these bubbles of quantum fields are particles. No equations. <laughs> <laughs> so does that, do you mean that like with quantum fields you can have sort of particles coming out of nothing? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely, yeah. So you can actually do certain experiments to really see these kind of behaviors. So usually, as I was saying, the kind of experiments that we are doing are, well, not me personally, <laughs> I've never done it, actually. My background is physics. So although in the maths department, I studied undergrad physics. Uh -huh. First year, you're said to do labs, which I hated with a burning passion. And this is why I also decided to move to theoretical physics, no labs. Um, but people who do experiments, what they do, they scatter particles. So you produce protons, protons, electrons, various type of particles, and you smash them together. Now, because of these quantum fields, you have certain uncertainty behind. You're not 100% sure of what's going to come out. You know that there's going to be certain processes 
with certain probabilities. And so if you really think about this, some of these particles are generated out of, well, not really nothing from energy. So, you know, E equal to MC squared. So I lied. I actually said an equation now. <laughs> but you know that energy is equal to mass. So when you scatter particles together, you're putting a lot of energy together that can be transformed in different type of particles. So really, they're generated out of these quantum fields from nothing, but actually from energy. Yeah, I see. Yeah, so is all this kind of a, a new way of, of looking at stuff and <coughs> describing stuff that can't be explained with, with other theories and things? Yeah, yeah. So people have tried to come up with alternatives to quantum field theory. And as I was saying, so far, quantum field theory, in particular what is called the standard model of particle physics, is a quantum field theory describing all of the known interactions that we know in the real world, electromagnetic, nuclear forces, uh, uh, what is called weak force, strong force. Gravity is a little bit on the side, so let me get back <laughs> to a second. Um, but all of the particles and all of the forces of our universe are described by this unified theory. And it produces beautiful predictions that they are matched by experiments. However, we also know that this is not, this cannot be the ultimate theory to describe everything. For example, gravity is not really part of the whole thing. Gravity, we still think of it as, in a certain sense, a classical theory. All of these particles are moving into space-time, but space-time is fixed. However, if you think about what I was saying before, that like you know, particles can come out of the vacuum and so on, one would also like to describe space-time in this sort of bubbly way, in a sort of quantum way. So far, we do not have a quantum theory of gravity. So... Originally, string theory, well, original string theory came out as a way of describing particle spectra, the experiments, and soon it was realized that it, it was not working. And people moved on to what is called now quantum chromodynamics, the theory of strong interaction that was working better. However, then people realized that actually string theory if, is one of the possible framework that will give you a sort of unified theory of quantum fields and gravity. However, it also contains a lot of extra stuff. And as I said before, as a mathematical theory, I love it. If you really want to talk about the real world, not so much, because usually these string theories are containing a lot of different particles, which we have not seen in nature. So we know that probably this is not the right way of thinking about that. But as you were asking, this quantum field theory on its own is a perfectly good mathematical framework that describes everything we have seen so far in LHC, for example, this Large Hadron Collider at Geneva, but it's still missing a lot of stuff. For example, um, we don't quite know a description of dark matter, dark energy. As soon as you start really thinking about the cosmos, we know very little. When we think about the extremely small scattering these particles, we know a little bit more, but also we don't know everything there is to know. So you might ask, well, what does it happen if I keep on probing shorter and shorter distances? Well, first of all, we don't have a lab that does that. Uh, I don't think it's ever going to be built. It's, you see, of course, I would love to build a gigantic lab that can scatter particles super fast. The problem is that you have to make an argument with people who are going to give you the money. Mm. And the argument is, well, let's see what happens. It's not a good argument. So I'm afraid there's going to be a little bit of time before they're going to build some bigger machine. 
Uh, but yeah, basically the questions that we are still left to answer is what happens on the extremely small and on the extremely large scale. Yeah. So there is still work for you guys. <laughs> oh, it, it's it's kind of a field that I, I guess there's there's a lot to do. Um, it's it's really exciting to see what we might find out and what we might discover in in the next few decades and centuries. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There is a little bit of, of course, there's always trends in, in theoretical physics as in many other um, disciplines. So right now, some big trends are on quantum computing. Um, so quantum computing is, in a certain sense, a follow-up of quantum mechanics. You don't need to go all the way to quantum field theory. You put a lot of different quantum mechanical systems together and then you think, oh, well, I mean, there's nothing really more I can do. But actually, now we're really getting to hardwares uh, that they can really do these quantum simulations uh, in some beautiful way. And uh, one of the beauties over there is that by playing with the rules of quantum mechanics, you can achieve stuff that you cannot do on classical computers. So there was some big claim by Google that they reached what she's called quantum supremacy. There's a lot of cool names in this, uh, in this kind <laughs> of <laughs> world. Um, which means they reached a state of the art for quantum computers that you would never be able to achieve with a classical computer. However, then like, you know, IBM said, well, not quite guys. Uh, you could have done the same with some medium sized town capacity of storage and all right, yes. Uh, but now there is a little bit of shift. There is a bit of fr frustration in a certain sense from, from the particle physics point of view, because as we were asking before, this theory works well, yes. Do we know of any experiment that doesn't quite match? Well, not really. We don't really know what, what else um, to look for. We are trying to come up with different type of theories which incorporate the standard model because we know it works well and they would give some predictability. But so far there is a bit of frustration just because labs have shown that the standard model works beautifully well. That's great, but we also like to have some tension. Uh, otherwise, like, you know, you put down your pen and you have done everything there is to do in life. Uh, so, so far, people have been moving a little bit on cosmology. Uh, there's a big revival and quantum computers is the other um, big, big topic at the minute. Yeah. Yeah, you need some, some drama in your life. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. So, so, for example, there was this when they announced the discovery of the Higgs boson, it was a beautiful scientific achievement, but basically nobody was surprised that that was like, we knew that the theory was very consistent. It had to be there. It would have been so much better. In hindsight, it would have been so much better not to find it. <laughs> and then you're there and I was like, oh my God, then I didn't understand anything. I should do something completely different. But so far, everything the standard model is telling us has been verified experimentally. There are still, as I was saying, some tensions, but they're not massive tensions. Um, for, for example, if you think about it, back in the days when people didn't even know quantum mechanics, they thought that like electrons, they're little balls going around. Uh -huh. And then they were doing these double slit experiments. And then over there, there was a big tension. You're like, oh, the electron is either going left or right. Well, actually, not quite. It's behaving like a wave. And so that was really like, you know, some change on, on paradigms of, of thinking. We don't have this right now. Uh, but it's also, be, I, I should say, it's been a, a, a success of theoretic, of modern theoretical physics getting to this point. So at the beginning, literally, people were smashing stuff together and try to come up with arguments for why they were observing what they were observing. So it's really like, you know, going in the dark with a little lantern. And, mm -hmm. and now we, we have the one of the best achievements of theoretical physics. We know it's not the end answer, but also we don't have this, this massive drama in our lives. 
That's really cool. I mean, um, Junaid, you're a, you're a maths and physics student. Um, I study pure maths, just maths. <coughs> um, so, so kind of my stance on this is probably a bit different to yours, Junaid. But um, I guess it's quite interesting how the the theoretical and the practical sides kind of inter uh, interlock and kind of overlap with each other. And that sometimes, as you say, there's kind of things that don't line up that means well. This this thing that we've actually observed doesn't match the theory we've got, yeah. and, and and I guess that's kind of a really interesting and really crucial thing to a lot of lot of the development of the theory, um, particularly with things like as you say quantum and things. That's, I mean, over over the last hundred years that has developed so much from almost nothing, mm -hmm. and it's it's so exciting to think about kind of what might be in What's store next? for the next hundred years. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, but also in, in recent times, there's been quite a lot of interchange of ideas between pure maths and more theoretical physics. Just because you don't have some experimental verifications of many theories doesn't mean that they don't teach us anything. So in particular, the other big area of my research has to do with connections between string theory and number theory as a way of generating like really two. Well, one of the things that as as a mathematician, if, if you are a proper mathematician like you are, then you <laughs> like proofs. I feel targeted. <laughs> you know what? I, I, from my physics side, if instead I'm seeing a hundred examples and they follow my pattern, then I declare this a victory and I declare it a, the a, a physicist theorem. But of course, a mathematician would really like to prove it from like, you know, first principles. But a lot of these theories, although they don't have any physical verification, they actually give you ideas that then you can try to prove in math for number theory. So there's a lot of interchange. That's just one topic. There's a lot of other stuff going on in connection between quantum field theory and geometry. And there's been really a, 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 a revival of the idea of using theoretical physics, not just as a framework to like explain experiments, but as a framework to give you idea for which you can actually do mathematical proofs of interest to pure mathematicians, which I also found it very fascinating. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought that there'd be any sort of practical, like physical uses for, say, number theory, uh, <laughs> having started studying it this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as interesting as it is. <laughs> but no, actually, I, I find that, I think that is very cool. Like, I would not have thought it'd be have real it's, world applications at all. It's yeah. fascinating the way that like certain certain topics of pure mathematics and kind of things that are entirely in your own head and they don't really exist in the real world talking about like infinite dimensional spaces and things mm -hmm. it's like th you cannot actually comprehend what that is and yet things like that have fundamental um kind of repercussions on on the physical world yeah. and how we can understand it yeah, we love those kind of spaces so, uh, <laughs> that, those are the spaces for quantum mechanics so yeah yeah that's 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 great it's it's really exciting to kind of do research because often research is kind of done for research's sake and then it's only years decades later that we find out oh, this has an application yeah 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 but for, for example uh, going back to the point i was making before about the, these big machineries that are needed for experiments sure from our point of view of course the end the end game is trying to discover new physics however in the process even just from the technological point of view Last time they built CERN, they invented the internet. Oh, we're kind of happy with the internet. Like, you know, it's a great byproduct. But like in terms of using science, pure math or like physics has a way of pushing like knowledge and, and okay, it forces you to actually achieve little goals that maybe is not what you want to do 
on the longer run, but still they're like developing, say, pure math, physics, technology. Those are excellent stuff. Of course, like being the math department is a little bit more research for research sake, <laughs> but this sort of seeding of ideas between different worlds is, is working really well. Yeah. Yeah, you, you mentioned like quantum computing as well as kind of, I guess, a whole another branch of science that is now coming into kind of being linked together with, with these mathematical ideas and these kind of physical concepts that you've got all the computer scientists saying, hello, let's have a talk about all this as well. And I, I guess that's super exciting to yeah. see where that can take you. And that's kind of a whole new branch of things. Absolutely. There's already, it, it's, it's actually insane. The amount of, if you wish, programs that we have for quantum computers, it's already insanely big compared to actually how good our quantum computers are. So that's a setup where people knew the rules of the games. They are the rules of quantum mechanics. The whole creativity is how you put them together to come up with um, new algorithms that you couldn't do in a normal computer. Let me give you a concrete example. Whenever we pay on the internet, we use this RSA cryptographic uh, um, algorithm, public-private key. Uh -huh. This relies crucially on the fact that if I give you a big number, it's very easy to know that it's not prime. But if I ask you, okay, it's the product of two numbers, can you tell me these numbers? The answer is, well, no, it's gonna yeah. take me a long time. Quantum computers do that in short time. However, you shouldn't be scared because we don't have a computer yet that actually can run it live by like, you know, tracking your Amazon transaction and cracking your codes. However, this is one of the cases where we knew the rules. People are very creative. They put the rule together and it came up with a lot of new algorithms. The problem is that technology is a little bit behind. Um, one of the biggest issues there, which is of course just a hardware issue, is the fact that the real world doesn't really want to be quantum. Every time you have a little bit of, uh, like, you know, uh, interactions with the environment, being that even just some thermal fluctuation, like you have the air, which is moving a little bit, in general, it destroys entanglement. And entanglement is the key feature of this quantum computer, what, what Einstein was calling a spooky action at a distance. But this is a hardware problem. How can you actually come up with a hardware that survives long enough for you to run your simulation, to run your quantum algorithm before the whole thing explodes. Doesn't really explode, but like, you know, <laughs> you, you, you get my drift, yeah. Before it actually disappears and is not quantum anymore. So we are at that point where really we need our engineering friends to do a little bit better and come up with a better <laughs> quantum computer. Google and IBM, they're throwing stupid money at, at quantum computer because they know they're gonna be the big breakthrough. Yeah, they're getting there, they're getting there, but the technologies are still um, a little bit behind our computers, tabletop computers, yeah. This is why I think uh, theory is king, you know, ditch for, <laughs> ditch for labs, switch for maths and physics, don't worry about real-world applications. <laughs> Just embrace the theoretical algorithms and all is good. As, as a mathematician, I'm loving what I'm hearing right now. <laughs> that's, that's music to my ears good today. To hear. <laughs> so the, all the maths talk, all the maths people I interact with have just been rubbing off on me too much. It's, it's, that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. If anything, it's an excellent thing. <laughs> it's it's going to change your life for the better, Junaid. Well, of course you'd say that, though. Of, of course I'd say that. Uh, yeah. I'm not paid to advertise maths. <laughs> I do it willingly. It's okay. It's all good. 
Okay, so now I was thinking maybe going for a slight change in topic. Um, maybe, Daniele, maybe you could tell us a bit about the sort of day-to-day -day kind of uh, work you do in your research. Very good, yeah. Well, when I'm not teaching, which is uh, <laughs> unfortunately during term time, is most of my time. Um, it's a little bit like, it varies a lot. So there's a lot of... Uh, social part of uh, research. Of course, you can just go to your office and do whatever you want to do without interacting with anyone. However, there is a huge pool of people, open sources. I'm not sure if you've ever heard this, this website called The Archive, literally, where there's an open source. You can put all of your papers there. They're not necessarily peer-reviewed, so take them like, you know, with a little bit of uh, uh, salt, but um, it's a great way to see what people are doing. And by discussing with other people, you can actually generate new idea. Like, I'm an expert on this topic, you're an expert on this other topic, put together, and we try to come up with like some new ideas. So then there is the first stage um, where everyone is very excited. Oh yeah, so we have this new idea, let's try to like track it on. Um, and then usually at that point, you try to research a little bit like what has been done in the literature. So that is a big change between, let's say, university studies and research. I love the university because all of your knowledge is in a book, is in the lecture notes, it, it has already been done. Research is hard because you don't know where you're going with your thought. Like, with experience, of course, you kind of know if what you're thinking is feasible or not, but still, you don't know the end result. It might be that what the theorem you're trying to prove is just false. And then you're spending like, you know, months and months trying to prove the contrary. So at the beginning, you try to see a little bit what has been done by other people. So you research a little bit the literature. And then after a while, uh, you realize, okay, yeah, I just need to sit there and do my own calculations. So I try to do a sort of hybrid approach, as I was saying before, I'm not a mathematician. So I'm very happy with generating a huge list of examples, not necessarily like numerical simulations. I I've done some numerical simulations in the past, like um, pictures of uh, solitary waves, some, some sort of solitons object, which are called beautiful type of object, vortices, monopoles. And these are kind of stuff that you can simulate with a computer. However, most of my cases now are analytical studies, but I can generate a lot of examples and see if from this finite number of examples, I can spot the genetic pattern. In many cases, it's literally patterns on numbers, and now I can promote one of my favorite websites on the whole world, and it's called the Online Encyclopedia of Integer Sequences. Love the you go, yes. you go there, fun. you put a bunch of numbers, and of course these are the numbers of this and that sequence. And it's great, because sometimes from my examples, I don't know what these numbers are, you put them there, and you spot, of course, these are Fibonacci numbers, or whatever. So there is a sort of experimental part, if you wish, although an experimentalist would like yell at me, because this is not really <laughs> experiment. Um, and then, there's also, I, I, I should also be honest, so it's not all like, you know, oh yes, you always discover new stuff. There is also a lot of frustration at the times because you have all the pieces of the puzzle, you keep on staring at them for days and days and days, and you don't see how they fit together. And uh, especially as a PhD student, you need to have a little bit of resilience because uh, it's not always that your research uh, goes well. Like it could really be that you get stuck because maybe the idea was too ambitious or maybe what you're trying to, to do just doesn't work. So then with experience, you realize when is the time actually, okay, yeah, let me put this on a side. And it's also why it's really good to have, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to have a, a lot of collaborators that are extremely good, so much better than me with a computer. So they can really help you out. They can produce more data for me. 
I can bring them my frustration as, oh, no, but we should try to do this, this and that. So the social part is extremely useful. And uh, this is basically what I do when I research. I go to my office, I stare at my beautiful number for a couple of hours and I just try to like, do something with that. Yeah. Oh, so that sounds quite nice. I'm glad to hear about the sort of social aspect in particular, because I guess with sort of physics research, there's the kind of idea of like mad geniuses just like bashing on a whiteboard on their own, like chalkboard. If you're that obsessed, it's got to be a chalkboard. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I still have a blackboard in my office. So I'm, I'm yeah. very, I'm very glad of that. Yeah, not a whiteboard. <laughs> no, no. School. The social part is is extremely useful. Then. Of course, then at a certain point, there is also the social part of presenting your findings at a workshop and a conference. And, and like, you know, at that point, you, you, you're also a little bit proud of what you've been doing. Look, I have put all of this stuff together and I generated some new knowledge. Let me tell you about this. And uh, then at that point, there is also another part of, of the social aspect, be because as I was saying, there are trends. So although you might be very proud of what you have done, it might be that the bigger community doesn't particularly care. Um, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be doing it because as we were saying before, a lot of achievements were done and in the past people, oh, this is useless. But then people later on realize, well, actually, no, this is not useless. So we can actually use it to do something else. So um, that part of presenting your work is also extremely useful. You're getting feedback from the community. Um, you are getting a little bit of pride in presenting what you've done, which I think it's also good. And um, in terms of PhD students doing that, that is extremely useful because when you're doing an undergrad, you're trying to get like, you know, the core of your knowledge. And then as a PhD, you take a very specific topic and you become the expert of that topic. But then you're put in, in a position to face yourself with other PhDs who have been going to research in slightly different topics. So it broadens you a little bit the perspective. Yeah. Still very difficult, like even uh, later on, it's still very difficult to actually be following everything just because you don't have enough hours in a day. But still, like, you know, by having this sort of shuttle aspects, you can get a little bit of an idea of what other people are doing. And then you realize, oh, actually, this stuff looks like something that I could be using. And then at that point, you can actually jump on the subject. You can actually read the literature and try to implement it in your research. So, yeah. It's, it's wonderful that there's that much research out there that you couldn't possibly keep up with it. Yeah. I think that, that's, that's <laughs> such, a, such a great thing that like the scientific community has got that and it's, yeah. it's, it's brilliant. Just so on this archive, you can go there. Uh, you can go. It's, it's for maths papers. They divide number theory, combinatorics and so on. You can see that there's roughly 10 paper per day uh, on all of these subjects. In theoretical physics, usually it's around 20. And it's great, as you were saying, I'm not 100% that all of these papers are, I don't want to say wrong, but also there's a lot of garbage out there. So <laughs> th there's a lot of noise as well, right? Because people, of course, they're, they're trying to do research. And unfortunately, a big part of the, the academia later on is how productive you are. And if you are put under pressure, of producing papers, then in many cases, like, you know, something that maybe you would have put as an example, then you put it as a new paper. So there is a lot of noise. One of the good things of having an advisor is that an advisor has a bit more experience, so they can actually tell you, look, out of all these papers, pick this, 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 and that. But all of the, like, all of the knowledge that you get out, uh, it, it, it has increased dramatically. Back in the days, 
they didn't have this sort of internet repositories. So uh, I still remember, I'm not super old, but I still remember in my, <laughs> in, in my uh, department when I was a PhD student, you would have physical copies of preprints of papers. Because maybe I knew that you were in a different university, I would send you the physical copy and you would put it out there for people to read. And so this dissemination of knowledge was way slower. Now, right now, with the internet, you have a flux of papers, open access, um, that you can just read and you can really see what everyone is doing uh, constantly, yeah. Yeah, the, the internet has done a lot for like collaborative research and, and that's, that's a brilliant Absolutely. thing. Absolutely, yeah. yeah as we're saying, all these different kind of branches of science have to come together and like have yeah. to work collaboratively. There's, there's so many different uh, perspectives that you have from different uh, fields on, on particular topics and, and that's, that's really good. Yeah, it must make it quite hard to know like what to look at when you're doing literature <laughs> reviews. Right? Yeah, I absolutely. Assume. That takes experience, yeah. And, and um, luckily, I would say our work, both pure maths and, and theoretical physics, are small enough that at a certain point you actually kind of know who the good people are. It is also a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy at a certain point, like you tend to be biased towards newcomers. I don't know if I've heard of this recent uh, progress in some uh, number theory results. So we all know there's infinite number of primes, but there is this conjecture that there's infinite couples of twin primes, primes that differ by two units. Very recently, and, and this is an open conjecture, people believe it to be true, they check it numerically, but like this is not a proof. Uh -huh. Very recently, there was a paper by this virtually unknown, I think it was a Chinese mathematician. And it was put out, but there is, as, as we were saying before, the flux of information on the internet is massive. However, it was picked up as probably like not, not, not a, 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 a fluke. And actually, although <laughs> this person did not quite prove the statement, I think the statement that he proved was that there are infinite number of primes within distance, and I kid you not, like one billion or something like that. However, this was a game changer, and this was coming from a virtually unknown person. So there is a little bit of bias of the community from like, you know, newcomers or like, you know, people who are not known. But um, whenever there are good results, like the community is big enough that even if you're like an unknown person, uh, your work will still be read uh, properly. And like, you know, if there is something there, then like, oh my God, there's this some like, you know, new result. And uh, um, people have actually started working on this stuff. It was also difficult because being part of the social uh, group of people working on a certain subject, you also tend to use the same notation, the same machinery. This person from outside used some completely different type of math. So of course, all the experts in number theory they were there like, okay, it's going to take us a bit of time to actually understand if this is sensible or if this is nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I guess with academia, there's always a fear that like when you're trying to break into it, like no one's going to hear your voice or things like that. But I guess it's good to hear that yeah. people will recognize your work if yeah. you're... At the beginning, there, there's a lot of possibilities. So as I was saying before, at the beginning, you're going to become an expert on some little area. And the communities over there are, are, are basically like, you know, big families. So you go to workshops together and they're not massive. Like one of the good things is that we don't have this massive workshop, like, you know, for example, people doing med school R. Like those are workshops with 2000 people. How can you be heard over there if you're not already like, you know, the super professor? Luckily for us, we have smaller workshops 
where basically everyone is an expert on what you're working on, maybe different facets, but still you're given the possibility, even as a, like, you know, as a PhD student, as a postdoc, to actually present your work and be known by the smaller community. And then you have like slightly bigger conferences and when you get a little bit more like, you know, advanced, they can actually be invited there to give plenary lectures on the bigger picture. But at the beginning, of course, like, you know, it takes time to get to the bigger picture. At the beginning, you want to learn your problem and your problem alone, to, like, you know, to every little detail and then present your results to like the smaller community. Yeah. No, no, it's, it's, of course, if you think about like, you know, being a world recognized theoretical physicist, well, if you ask people around, who do they know? Einstein, Hawking, these are like the few names of people that they know. But even in theoretical physics, uh, there are, people who are extremely well-known within the theoretical physics community. For example, if I said the name Witten, does it ring a bell? So he's possibly the greatest theoretical physicist alive and he has a Fields Medal. So also the maths people kind of recognize like th this person worth. But um, it's very difficult to break, even if this person is super well-known within theoretical physics, outside you're not of the same caliber, quote unquote, I mean, he's extremely good but you're not at the same level of being known as like, you know, Einstein or Hawking, just because there is a big threshold of being like accessible to the wider community. Yeah. Okay. okay, thank you for that. Um, I was thinking now we could maybe talk about uh, how you got into academia mm -hmm. and like your reasons as to going into that as yep. opposed to anything else. Very good, very good. <laughs> Um, as I was saying, so my undergrad was in physics and I always really liked, so when I was in high school, I was doing all of these like maths and physics, uh, Olympiads uh, sort of games. I really liked like, you know, the challenge of like this little puzzle you put there, you have all the pieces of the puzzle, how do you put them together? And, uh, um, but I liked physics more than maths. <laughs> uh, I didn't like labs, that, that I didn't, but I liked um, the idea, as we were saying before, of coming up with some mathematical framework to describe the real world. Uh -huh. um, so then in uni, I immediately switched to the theory side. So the way it worked was that the first three years were in common, so I had to do labs and I hated them so much. I remember still one experiment, I still remember. So we were given something like a thousand nails to measure and then plot the histograms of measurement just to show that in general when you do some error you're gonna get some Gaussian, some standard deviation and of course smart student knew that and so you just fake the data of course the professors were smarter than us and they, they knew that we knew <laughs> so they would give you two different sets of nails with slightly different lengths so you would actually get what is called a bimodal distribution and I remember measuring nails and hitting my life. I said, okay, I, I want to do theory. Uh, so I switched then um, for the master in theoretical physics, which I loved immediately. So I really liked how we were putting together very abstract objects in pure math with like, you know, phys physical application, not really experiment, but like, you know, a lot of beautiful objects. There's, there's a lot of beautiful mathematically rich theories, quantum field theories, which are called supersymmetric, uh, field theories, string theory, and so on. And so I immediately decided I wanted to do a PhD. And as I said before, um, a PhD can be a little bit frustrating at times just because like you don't really know if what you're doing is a waste of time, if you're ever gonna go like, you know, to the uh, right result. 
and uh, I got lucky enough, so it depends a lot also, there is a bit of luck involved as everything in life, you can put as much effort as you want, you need to be lucky to have a good advisor who knows actually when to like, you know, pull the plug to a project, put you on something else. So I got really lucky, I got two really good advisors and, and they helped me out. And then after that, um, I knew I wanted to do at least a postdoc. So I did my, so my undergrad was in Italy, but then my PhD, I did it partly in Italy and partly in France. Um, but the French system was very weird and I really didn't want to stay there. I, I really liked it, but I, um, I found a postdoc uh, in Cambridge in the UK. So then I didn't leave the UK after that. And uh, over there it was, I got really lucky. There was, as I was saying before, the social component was extremely important. It was a really lucky period. We were something like eight postdocs, all young kids, all they wanted to show like, you know, that they were doing like cool stuff and we will all interact together. So I was able to actually do um, quite some good work, go around, produce some papers. And then uh, after that, I kind of knew, yes, okay, I, I really like doing research. So I'll try to like uh, continue. It's difficult because you have to move a little bit around. I was really lucky because basically I came to Cambridge and then I think I did one year in Germany and then I came back in here, here in Durham. So you, you need to change uh, usually this, this few years of postdoc positions are a couple of years and then you have to move. Honestly, if you want to have family, that's a little bit tricky. Um, so there is not really a lot of help from that point of view. If you want to stay in a place, there are not a lot of possibilities. It's really meant to be as a sort of way of moving around until you get a permanent position. Yeah, which, which I understand it, it's a big barrier because at a certain point people are like, you know what, I want to stay stable in some place. So um, that part is hard, I would say. You, you, you really need to love it. I do love research. I do love teaching. Um, I would like to say a few things that they don't, do not quite work here in Durham University, but I'm, I'm not going to enter there. But I do love the teaching part. And, and uh, um, you see, like, teaching gives you a possibility to explain things in the way you would have liked them to be told to you. <laughs> So it kind of really helps. And uh, um, I think actually the, the, the teaching I'm doing here, I'm, I'm very happy with. So I'm doing quantum computing actually, so self-promoting uh -huh. uh -huh. uh, for this term, which is a really nice module because you get really to show students some, some cool stuff. Um, but then like research-wise, uh, um, it gets a bit tricky. So teaching takes time. Research also takes time, but in many cases, you need to sit there still thinking about a problem. As you were saying before, it's all in your head, right? You have to, mo you have to do these mental constructions. And if you need to like, you know, go and teach, go and do some tutorials, the mental construction collapses. So every time getting back there uh, takes a bit of time. So finding a good balance, I think, I think it's good. Um, I did some teaching when I was a postdoc, just because, as I said, I really liked it. But as a postdoc, you are spending most of your time doing research. So doing a little bit of teaching, I actually liked it as a sort of break from the mental constructions. Yeah, yeah it's a bit of variation, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I wanted to ask, kind of, because um, you, obviously you do a lot of research in, in these topics. Um, I know Junaid and I both uh, 
took the linear algebra module last year that yeah. you taught. Um, that was one of my favourites. I'm not just saying that it was. <laughs> That's because I'm was. here in the room with you. <laughs> yeah, if if Danielle was not here, <laughs> then then the truth would come out. But for now, it's my favourite. Um, but it, uh, all joking aside, like um, how what what are the challenges you find in kind of getting a topic like that, which is so abstract and kind of such a theoretical thing, across to students who may not have seen stuff like that before, may not have seen, uh, in that case, mathematics in that sort of way, in that sort of style. Yeah, yeah. What, what are the challenges with that? Good, yeah. So there's various different ways of teaching it. So the, the way I try to teach it is precisely, as I said, try to visualize many of the concepts. And uh, this goes beyond linear algebra. I really believe, like you see, one of the big things of math is that at a certain point we spot patterns. The things you see in linear algebra, in many cases you should spot, oh, this pattern is very similar to the other pattern I've seen in group theory. Or, for example, if you think about vectors, you say, oh, inner products that we have seen, oh, this is actually very similar to what I'm, I'm very familiar with in three dimensions. So one of the big things of mathematics is trying to see how all these seemingly different things actually fit together under the same umbrella. So I found it very useful to actually keep on reminding, well, actually, although I'm making this definition, which looks very abstract, this is just the more general version of something that you've already seen and you're very familiar with. So, uh, of course, you could teach it. So my undergrad, although it was in physics, it was taught by pure mathematicians. And some of them were great teachers, but you were given definition, definition, definition. And it was up to you to actually sit there after the lecture, like books and books and books, until you realize, oh, actually, I now understand this definition. I can visualize it in this way. So I found it very useful uh, rather than immediately trying to grasp the big picture. I'm going to give you the big picture, but I'm going to just keep on reminding you that this big picture is just putting together a lot of stuff that you've already seen before. Uh, the hardest thing I would say of linear algebra is the sheer number of students. That is uh, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> yeah. But as, and also I really like it as a module because I get to see like first year students. Like, you know, it's your first experience after high school. And like in university, it, it, it's very scary at first because like, you know, you're thrown in the water and you're told to swim. And uh, it, it takes a little bit of time to getting used to. So I, I hope I was able to do a little bit of a job, like, you know, to ease you into it. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. It's, I, I think, it's, it's really great to, particularly with something like that, to have kind of always in the back of your head kind of analogous two-dimensional and three-dimensional mm -hmm, cases. Mm -hmm, but absolutely. when you're talking about arbitrary numbers of dimensions and things that don't necessarily exist yeah. in, the, in the normal way, it's, it's great to have that sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. thing to relate it back to. Yeah, because then also in this way, you're going to start building confidence of, of you realizing patterns. And then once you start discussing this non-existent, well, everything is non-existent, but like, you know, these <laughs> vectors in 15 dimension and so on, we say, okay, although I cannot visualize it, I, I now have enough experience in understanding what are the general properties that even if I'm in 15 dimension with complex entries, I still know what I'm actually talking about. And then you see more abstract stuff. Now you're taking probably algebra two and so on. So you start seeing more abstract stuff, but you can still bring it back to more concrete things. And then your notion of being concrete evolves with time. Like next year, rings for you are going to be very concrete, although it's nothing that you can find in the real world. But yeah, it, it, it definitely helps breaking it down into 
smaller things that you can visualize uh, and then you start building from there. Then like, you know, you get more experience, you find it easier to visualize more and more abstract objects. Yeah, I think having something real you can link things back to is just always yeah. much easier than just bombarding yourself with abstract theories <laughs> one after another. I don't know, I like the maths. I don't, I don't <laughs> do none of this physics. It's the maths for me. Wow, okay. Doing experiments. Machine. No, just numbers. Numbers, Junaid. All the numbers. Okay, I think we can maybe start to wrap up there. Yeah, I, I have w one big question. Sure. Um, I apologise to all the listeners who have who've been bombarded with the the seriousness and the, the physics going on here. Um, if you'll allow me to take it just a level even deeper, mm. something <laughs> even more important and academic. Um, in two words, it's Fruity Fridays. <laughs> now... Daniel, I, I know you're kind of a part of this movement, this recent <laughs> movement that has started. Um, could you kind of give a little summary of what Fruity Fridays is for all the listeners? Well, I think all, all, all credit goes to Ralph and Luca, uh, who are two great students always sitting outside of my office. And they decided to make life in the department a little bit like nicer one day a week. And for this reason, we are wearing, we are wearing very fruity t-shirts uh, or shirts on a Friday, just like, you know, to lighten up the mood. And yesterday, one of my colleagues, surprisingly, bought a, brought a ukulele of his little daughter, and he's extremely good. So he started playing uh, Somewhere Over the Rainbow on the ukulele, and everyone was like, you know, merry and like cheerful with very colorful uh, shirts. So I thought it was like a nice idea. I, I have to say, I really like how now the department is actually your department as well. I don't know if you had the pleasure of being in the old department. It was, let's say, not good. <laughs> now, this is the department where we're all there, and I think it's really good to have a one day where you can actually, like, you know, take it easy and, and enjoy each other's company. Huh. Yeah, it's, it's things like that that really contribute to the kind of um, collaborative and social aspect yeah. of, of academic departments yeah, and kind of link back to all these things about research and help us all discover new stuff and kind of work together better. Yeah, I think having like a sort of sense of community is yeah. very important in yeah. any work, really. Um, it's going to a point now where if I wake up in the morning and I see Ben wearing like a Hawaiian shirt, I know, <laughs> you oh, know it's Friday. Friday. <laughs> <laughs> you so. can set your calendar by it. <laughs> I'll use uh, your shirt you've got as like a basis for my, my understanding of time. Yeah, that's, that's, that's all you need in life. Fruity shirt on a Friday. You go yeah. Okay, well, I think that's everything, unless you have any closing remarks, anything you'd like to say, Daniel? No, I think this is a great idea. I hope there are a few people listening online, and uh, um, I think you should continue doing that. Yeah, there's more of us in the department. A lot of, one of the good things, there's a lot of young people. So we are all very keen with research and teaching and uh, getting to know you guys. So yeah, thank you so much for having me here. Uh, Anytime, anytime. <laughs> It'd be good to have you back. Um, well, that's all for this week. Um, thank you all for listening. Um, I hope to welcome you back to another episode, hopefully with Ben along as a Oh, I, I can't wait more. for the next one, Janae. It'd be great <laughs> to be back at some point. Yeah, doing it, having someone else to talk to, like, converse with, I think I did a lot. I, I really enjoy it compared to just coasting on my own. Yeah, it'd be great to be back again. Okay, well, I'll see you all next week. Goodbye.